This episode of Cardi Nerds is sponsored by Glass Health, a new digital notebook designed for all healthcare providers. With Glass Notebook, you can capture all of the schemas, scripts, and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of your patients. Their notebook is absolutely perfect for capturing and organizing tutorials, journal clubs, podcasts, photos, and lecture slides that have been building up chaotically on your phone and computer. Try Glass Notebook for yourself today by visiting glass.health to keep all of your medical knowledge in one place. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds, to the Cardiac Critical Care Series. This is Eunice Dugan, one of the co-chairs, and I'm here with Drs. Dan Ambender and Karen Desai. It's another great day to learn the Shulman Wards, as always. We already had an exciting episode with Drs. Elliot Miller and Nain Aurora about AKI and cardiorenal syndrome. And lucky for us, today is another glorious day where cardiologists and nephrologists get to work together. We're going to be discussing today's episode on Continuous Renal Replacement Therapy, or CRRT, in the CICU. I'm thrilled to be introducing today's FIT lead, who is already part of our CardioNurs family, as the FIT ambassador from University of Washington. Welcome to Dr. Tomio Tran. How is it going over there in the West Coast? Thanks, Eunice. You know, I'm really excited to be here, part of the CardioNurs family, and be a part of the good efforts to democratize medical education, so I really appreciate the invite. I'm especially excited to be on this episode as I get to introduce Dr. Joel Toff. Dr. Toff is a world-renowned nephrologist and medical director of research at St. Clair Nephrology. He is one of the three editors for the Nephrology Handbook of Critical Care Nephrology released last year. He has been lauded for being an excellent teacher, teaching medical students at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine, trainees at St. John Hospital and Medical Center, freely filtered podcast, hashtag NephJC on Twitter, and many other online education platforms, and seemingly the rest of the world via his Twitter under the handle of at KidneyBoy. Yeah, that's an awesome introduction. I am super honored to be here. I've never been on the Cardio Nerds before. I love the Cardio Nerds opening monologue, and I'm hoping that this episode will get that also. I've been a longtime listener, first-time participant, I guess is what I would say. Dr. Toff, this is amazing. And this is just a chance for us to share. We had set off recording, but Dr. Toff has been a leader in asynchronous medical education, along with Dr. Sparks. They've just done tremendous things in the field of nephrology and in the field of medical education. As you heard Tomio talk about all the things that you've done, but early on as uh, Cardinals was getting started, you had become one of our dearest mentors and gave us such great advice about how to build and grow. And we have just been admiring you and been learning from you and you are always available for advice. So it has been really really amazing. And it's really phenomenal that we're finally able to get you on Cardinerd so we could share the wealth for the rest of the listeners. All right. So let's get started with our case. We have a patient, Miss Nicole Kidney, who is a 60-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, presented with an anterior STEMI. This was complicated by acute heart failure and cardiogenic shock. She was emergently taken to the cath lab where a coronary angiography was done and it showed a 100% proximal LAD occlusion for which she received a successful PCI for. During the case, she was hemodynamically unstable, so they placed an Impella CP for shock and left ventricular unloading. The patient was then transferred to the CICU and was found to have an ejection fraction of 30% with an anteroapical wall motion abnormality. At baseline, her creatinine is 1.0. Okay, I know what you're all thinking. 
Deja vu. Many cardio nerds have seen this story unfold in an ICU near them. We can assume that there will be some degree of end organ damage, including to the kidneys in the setting of shock. Dr. Ta, in patients presenting with shock, what risk factors predict likelihood of requiring CRRT or continuous renal replacement therapy in the, the next coming days? Is there anything that can be done to mitigate the risk and to protect the kidneys early in the patient's course? You know, you've read the consult a million times. You make sure, you know, keep the blood pressure, keep that mean arterial pressure as high as feasible, no lower than 65. There is some evidence that if it's over 75, these patients do a bit better, not a survival benefit, but maybe a decreased need for dialysis. You want to avoid nephrotoxins, you know, aminoglycosides, NSAIDs. You want to minimize your dose of contrast. And we can talk about contrast more. I'm personally pretty skeptical about the nephrotoxicity of radio contrast. Uh, but certainly in retrospective trials, patients that get high doses of contrast have more likelihood of developing acute kidney injury. I'm just not certain that's not a proxy for a sicker, more complex patient. And that may be what's causing the contrast because there's been a number of trials where they've lowered the dose of contrast and they've not been able to lower the risk of acute kidney injury, which makes me a bit skeptical about that, that relationship there. And there's things like, you know, if you have a balloon pump, that'll increase your risk of acute kidney injury, but it's kind of a silly risk, right? Because they don't put the balloon pump in for cosmetic reasons. Like presumably the patient's going to die if they don't get that, right? So I'm not sure how helpful that is as a risk factor. It'll kind of identify patients, but it's not really a, a one that you can change, right? It's not modifiable, if you will. And I think oftentimes there's not a lot of modifiable risk factors, right? You're going to raise the blood pressure as much as you feasibly can. Uh, you're going to avoid hypotension as best you can. You're going to avoid volume depletion. Those are all good ones. You can select antibiotics that'll be less toxic and, you know, try to pick patients that are not so old, try to pick patients without pre-existing CKD, you know, again, not very modifiable. Yeah, you're so right, Dr. Toff. Yeah, a lot of the stuff, you know, when we deal with the critical care, a lot of the things that ensue are just part of the progression of what we see as part of the original insult for the patient. So you're so right. A lot of things are kind of required and it's definitely a risk benefit conversation. And sometimes the kidney or, you know, a different organs end up taking the hit. Getting back to the case, you know, as we feared on day three, our patient becomes oliguric, requiring diuretics and her creatinine is 2.5. The ICU team is, of course, worried about her kidney function. Now, we all know the basic schema for approaching AKI on the general medicine floor. As a brief reminder, we think of extrinsic causes like pre-renal, post-renal, and intrinsic causes like intrarenal causes. And we do a basic workup, includes urinalysis, urine microscopy, urine electrolytes, and phena when appropriate, and a renal ultrasound in select cases. But for a patient in the CICU, as you alluded to a little bit earlier, there are some specific consideration. You talked about contrast-induced nephropathy, possibly from an angiography, other sources versus ATN from the shock versus pigment nephropathy from any impella or MCS-associated hemolysis versus cardiorenal syndrome from heart failure, which we've covered in one of our previous episodes. So going along with what you were talking about, Dr. Toffel, how do you think about this differential and how do you end up prioritizing your evaluation, especially for patients in shock in the CICU following an acute MI? So when you approach acute kidney injury in the ICU in general, 19 out of 20 of those times, it's going to be acute tubular necrosis from hemodynamic insult. And you kind of outlined, in this case is kind of a a classic situation of a, acute kidney injury. 
uh, due to hemodynamic insult. And the pretest probability that that's what it is, is very high. So I think from a diagnostic perspective, my job as a consultant is to say, is there anything about this case that kind of tickles a nerve that makes me think, oh, that's not exactly how I'd expect it to run, right? You know, is there a report? <laughs> Did you hear from the anesthesiologist that when they intubated the patient, there was a lot of blood that they had to suction out? And you're like, wow, could this be a pulmonary renal syndrome, right? Could this be, you know, an ankyovasculitis that could be causing it or a good pastures, right? And we don't have any kind of hints. But that's one of the things you're thinking about. Or you kind of go through the resuscitation record and did the patient get, you know, 18 liters of resuscitation, you know, over a couple of days that would make you think about abdominal compartment syndrome. And again, that's an important diagnosis to make because, you know, there's a specific intervention that you need to take that's different than just the supportive care that you're going to give for ATN, right? And then the other one that you never want to miss is an obstruction, right? You know, the treatment for obstructive uropathy is not dialysis. We need to relieve the obstruction. And so the things that you don't want to miss are things where it's going to change your therapeutic direction, right? If it's an acute glomerulonephritis like a pulmonary renal syndrome, you're going to need to give immunosuppressants, right? If it's a abdominal compartment syndrome, you're going to need to open up the belly. You know, if it is obstruction, you're going to have to have urology come in and you have to relieve the obstruction. But that's what I think about in terms of the diagnostics. You know, what you were kind of going over, hemodynamic, contrast, pigment nephropathy, really, we have no specific interventions for any of those conditions. And it's just supportive care. And so pick which one you want to pick as your cause. It's really not going to change a lot of what we do. Generally, don't pick contrast nephropathy in my notes because I don't want to make the cardiologist feel bad, right? They're working very hard to take care of that patient, right? I'm serious, right? And I don't think it is, you know, I don't think it is helpful to keep emphasizing the risk of life-saving cardiac resuscitation or cardiac revascularization procedures, right? This patient would clearly have done worse with what was that 100%? Was it, where was the lesion? I missed that. That was in the LAD. Prox LAD. That sounds like a bad one. <laughs> that sounds like 100% prox LAD. I don't think this patient's going to have a good quality of life if that's not corrected. And that would be the same if the patient had a creatinine of three rather than one at baseline, right? And I worry all the time that my patients get passed up for life-saving angiography or PCI because they have CKD. We call that renalism people getting substandard medical care out of fear of causing dialysis. And quite honestly, dialysis is better than dying from your proximal LAD lesion. Dr. Toff, that is so relieving to hear. I think there are many interventional cardiologists that just want you to save that recording and just play it everywhere they go. Thanks for walking us through that di differential. As I get more subspecialized in my training, we see more of one specific thing but I do think that you highlighted a few different things, some of the low-hanging fruits, such as post-renal obstruction, where you know we could potentially fix them really quickly. So I think that it's really important to also be very systematic when you see a patient entering the ICU and just making sure that you cover all your bases. The abdominal compartment syndrome is another one that you don't want to miss because it's an easy diagnosis. You just get a bladder pressure. Right. And if that bladder pressure is elevated, that's just going to send you down the road and you'll start evaluating it. And it's one of those diseases that you never see until you start looking for it. And then you start seeing it in a lot more places. And so if you've had a patient that's had a pretty aggressive volume resuscitation with either blood or with IV fluids and you go to the, you start feeling that abdomen, that abdomen starts feeling a little firm, get a bladder pressure. 
It's actually not an uncommon scenario for us, especially in some of the more structural cases where we have large bore arterial access and, you know, we have a high stick or something. I've actually come across that a couple of times. So, just, so back to the case, just to update you on the patient's status, their BUN is 80 and their potassium is 4.5. The patient is oligaric despite maximal doses of diuretics. On bedside hemodynamics, the patient's RA pressure is 17 with minimal respiratory variation. The PA pressures are 55 over 30 with a mean of 38, and the wedge is 27 millimeters mercury. Their cardiac output is 3.8 liters per minute, and they have a cardiac index of 1.9. The team is wondering if they will need to start renal replacement therapy soon. We all know the classic AEIOU indications for dialysis, and as per TikTok star Dr. Glockenflexen, the nephrologist is actually the smartest person in the hospital. Dr. Toff, what information should we have on hand before we consult nephrology? Oh, don't call us without a potassium. That'll just give us a seizure. Like if you call us, and you know, I've got the, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, but I don't have a potassium, you'll probably get hung up on, right? So we're going to want a, a basic metabolic profile and, you know, probably a recent chest x-ray and give us a sense of how their oxygenation is going. Though this patient is getting to sound pretty fluid overloaded. And then, uh, the, the other thing that will, the nephrologist is going to scoff at is if you say, uh, maximal dose of diuretics. We will scoff unless you actually have the actual diuretics that you gave and the doses, because there's always more diuretics, right? And so I'd want to know exactly what was given and what, and what was the response there. There is a test that's available, and it's a functional test called the furosemide stress test. And the idea is you give a big slug of furosemide, and you look to see how much urine that they produce. And the slug is one milligram per kilogram if they are furosemide naive, so they have not had any loop diuretics before. So you're given usually you know, 70, 80 milligrams and 1.5 milligrams per kilogram if they've been on furosemide in the past. And now all of a sudden you're given 120, 140 milligrams potentially. So you give this dose of furosemide and you're looking to get uh, 200 cc's over the next two hours. And in the original article on the furosemide stress test, this was designed to predict the patient advancing to stage three AKI, but subsequently they said, well, actually, it's good at predicting patients needing dialysis in the next 24 hours. And that is very helpful, right? Getting that kind of being able to know, hey, this patient's not going to recover. And when you think about it, right, the ability to make urine in a response to a big slug of furosemide requires that they have glomerular function and uh, proximal tubule function, right? Because the furosemide is actually secreted by the proximal tubule to get into the tubular fluid is, isn't filtered by the glomerulus. But to make urine, you have to have filtering by the glomerulus. So both those things have to be intact and you have to have a functional loop of Henle for the furosemide to act. So you start to kind of check off different parts of the kidney that have to work in order for it to make urine. And that's why it's such a good test because it actually tests multiple components of the nephron. And so when you mention maximal dose of diuretics, to me, when I evaluate patients, they've already gotten an accidental furosemide stress test before I go there because they've been just stepping up trying to get their patient to urinate. And you can see, oh, they've failed their accidental furosemide stress test. This is a patient who's going to need dialysis. Um, and again, it doesn't mean you need to start dialysis, but it gives you a hint that they're going to need it. And that's always, that's always helpful because to me, the most dangerous part about starting dialysis is getting the access. And if I can have that access done, not by a bleary eyed, very tired surgeon in the middle of the night, or surgical resident in the middle of the night, but by somebody who's fresh and bushy-tailed early in the day, that's what I'd prefer. And so it allows you to do that type of planning. Like when's the safest time for us to get this 
dialysis access rather than crunching it when the potassium is already set. That's great, Dr. Toff. Those are very important things to think about. And, you know, us cardiologists, we love a good stress test. So that was super useful to go through. So, and you touched upon this a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about the timing. As we said, currently the patient doesn't have any strict indications. And of course, we want the line to put in in a timely manner, like not rushed. But is there a benefit to actually starting dialysis early in anticipation of needing it or later when the patient actually develops an absolute indication? And is there any data behind this? Yeah, so this is an area that's been investigated and investigated and investigated. There are four well-known trials about this. There's a Kiki, then a Kiki 2, START, and or START AKI, and then one called Elaine. And three of them are in agreement, and Elaine is the only one that's out there. So Elaine did show an advantage for starting dialysis early. It's a single-center study. It doesn't agree with the much larger multi-center trials, so we kind of usually ignore Elaine, put that off to the side. But the other three trials are in agreement that there was no advantage to starting dialysis. Akiki is a French trial, and the Akiki 1 was asking the question, does late start compared to early start, is there any advantage to that? It's a non-inferior trial, and there was no disadvantage to starting late. So they were essentially late start and early start were equivalent, okay? And then start AKI showed that patients that were started earlier, there was a more prolonged hemodialysis. So permanent dialysis after AKI was more common if you started early, which was very concerning. And then a Kiki 2, you know, if, if a Kiki 1 is like, well, if late is not worse than early, what about really late compared to late? Which is actually a totally logical question, right? It started to say, what if we only gave dialysis when we absolutely needed it? And I remember reviewing a Kiki 2 and the horror in my face when I read how late they were going. Like I would never have people that had been anuric for days. And I just don't let people go anuric for days. I get them on dialysis. I just, people need clearance in my mind. That's just the way I'm built. And sure enough, in a Kiki 2, not by their primary measurement of outcome, but by one of their secondary measures of outcome, which was, I think, a likelihood of death the super late dialysis was worse. And so if that BUN creeps over 140 and they're at Newark for a couple of days, it's time to start dialysis. You have good data that they do better. But big picture here, at this stage, no compelling reason to start dialysis. We have the luxury not only of time, but of evidence saying, hey, we're no advantage. We're not helping a patient out by providing them additional clearance now, which is something that we used to believe. This was a big paradigm in acute kidney medicine was provide some patients some early clearance. That should help a lot of things and prevent electrolyte disorders, prevent volume overload. And it does all those things. That just doesn't translate to better outcomes. Dr. Job, what reasons uh, have people given for why the group that had early dialysis at START had a prolonged time on dialysis? Well, the thing about START that's really, really concerning, and this was also seen in the Kiki, was, you know, what happens when you randomize START times of dialysis? You enroll everybody in the trial, and people that get randomized to the early started dialysis immediately after enrollment, right? Because you met the enrollment criteria, that's why you were enrolled in the trial. And then if you're in the late part, if you've been randomized to late, then you have to cross some other line that's established in the protocol when you'll start dialysis. And then you pick those things so that there's good separation in those groups, right? So let's say there's three days separation in the groups. 
Well, the natural history of AKI, it gets better, right? And so lots of people in those three days end up getting better and never needing dialysis. And I think the number was somewhere about a third to a half in those two trials and start and Nikiki one. Okay. And then there's no difference in outcome. So what you have is you have two different protocols that have absolutely the same outcome, but in one, you had to dialyze, you know, 30% or 50% more patients. So essentially by delaying dialysis, you spared a lot of people dialysis. Or if you got put or randomized to the early start, a third to 50% of those patients would have never needed dialysis and were getting dialysis essentially unnecessarily. That makes sense? Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as you were saying, for these patients that avoided renal replacement therapy, they avoided complications of renal replacement therapy. You have to remember some of that may include hypotension and that hypotension in and itself may have caused more kidney damage. Yes, you're getting right to exactly where they go in the discussion with this. When you get this unnecessary dialysis, you're causing unnecessary complications. And one of those complications is going to be prolonged dialysis. You know, for our patient, they didn't necessarily need dialysis up until the point of the case we have been discussing. But now our patient's aneuric has a BUN of 100, a creatinine of 3.9, a K of 5.0, and made sure to include the K to avoid giving Dr. Toff a a seizure. And the patient remains with grossly elevated cardiac filling pressures, unable to be managed with aggressive diuretics. And we have given this patient a furosemide stress test. And it's appearing that she will need renal replacement therapy. Her mechanical support, specifically with the impella, is on P8, and the blood pressure is 91 over 60. And for those not familiar with the impella, P8 is a high setting with a a performance level that's trying to give as much flow to the patient. So Dr. Toff, this patient certainly sounds like they will need renal replacement therapy. Can you describe the options we have, and what would you recommend for this patient? Yeah, so, you know, renal replacement therapy, it's an alphabet soup of therapies, right? So you have... Uh, continuous kidney replacement therapy, you have intermittent hemodialysis, you have a hybrid therapy called SLED or slow, low efficiency dialysis, which is kind of a schmear CRRT and IHD, uh, a continuous therapy and uh, intermittent hemo together, you get SLED. There are places like New York City where they do uh, peritoneal dialysis as a form of acute dialysis. When there was issues with availability during the COVID crisis, they were using peritoneal dialysis as an acute therapy. And it's used around the world also as an acute therapy. So that's another option. And, you know, we're going to, I'm going to pull peritoneal dialysis out of there. That is pretty untypical. There are a few places that can do it. It is effective if you need that. I have no experience with it and haven't seen it used as an acute therapy. There was a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine for malaria sepsis that showed poor outcomes with peritoneal dialysis, though I understand that people in Brazil now do it very effectively for acute care, but I'm not familiar with that data so much. And so what you're really looking at is a CRT or continuous kidney replacement therapy, CKRT, or intermittent hemodialysis, or this smear to the both, the SLED therapy. And there have been randomized controlled trials that have compared these in pairwise fashion. So continuous therapies to intermittent hemo and continuous therapies to SLED, and none of them have shown any advantage. Okay. So they're all considered roughly equal. However, and this is a really big however, you could imagine if you're going to design a randomized controlled trial, you could not 
have as part of your enrollment criteria patients that can't tolerate intermittent hemo, right? You can't enroll a patient who's got a blood pressure of 70 or 80 as their systolic and randomize them to intermittent hemo. That therapy will kill them. They won't be able to tolerate it. So you can only do a randomized controlled therapy in patients where you could potentially put them on intermittent hemo. This patient, very marginal. I would be incredibly nervous about trying intermittent hemo. I don't think any of those randomized controlled trials would allow this patient to get randomized, right? The blood pressure of 90 over 60 with a lot of support, right? That at Bella, you're going to want to get that out. So this to me is a patient that the only choice here is a continuous therapy, and that's going to be either uh, continuous kidney replacement therapy or this schmearing, this uh, slow, low efficiency dialysis. And it doesn't really matter which one you pick. They both work fine. The slow, low efficiency dialysis is, it's catching on. There's a lot of advantages to that just in terms of workforce and the machines that are available to do it. You could kind of use a intermittent hemo machine to run it. It doesn't take quite as much nursing support. So there's kind of other hospital employment issues that come to play and just uh, workforce issues that could kind of govern this type of thing. And it's essentially, it's running like a continuous kidney replacement therapy, but just overnight and not during the day. And that allows the patient to go for procedures without having to take up up the surface. It also allows you to stretch your machines if you're in a crisis situation like we were in COVID. With one continuous kidney replacement machine, you could dialyze two people, right? One during the day, one during the night. So there's a reasons why SLED is gaining uh, favor. But that's a decision that the hospital is kind of going to make for you, and it's not going to influence the outcome of your patient. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tuft. And as you said, renal replacement therapy is really an alphabet soup of therapies and acronyms and names. And we in cardiology are uh, absolutely guilty of, of very similar crimes against humanity. But for uh, us cardiac nerds, you know, we have mechanical circulatory support and we try to boil it down to simple things. So, for example, a pump, an oxygenator and tubing make up ECMO. But renal replacement therapy seems even more overwhelming and just like this black box that we may have a hard time understanding. So would you be so kind as to elaborate on the different types of CRRT and whether there are preferred methods for cardiac patients versus other special considerations for renal replacement therapy that's continuous? And even within cardiac patients, maybe ischemic patients, electrolytes, pressors, inotropes, all these other things that we should be thinking of and whether or not they're on mechanical circulatory support, I, it can get very complicated. What's your take on this uh, big, big, big topic? I know this is a very big question. No, no, this is important stuff. So once we've decided that we're going to do a continuous kidney replacement therapy, there are three other flavors so that you could do continuous hemodialysis, you could do continuous hemofiltration, and you could do continuous hemodiafiltration. And what these are is they are leaning on two different ways of cleaning the blood. There is um, convection and diffusion. So we'll talk about diffusion first. That's the one that's analogous to your standard outpatient dialysis that your end-stage renal disease patients go for three days a week. You put the blood in contact with the dialysate across a semi-permeable membrane. If you've ever taken a look at a dialyzer, it's like a bundle of like 10,000 very, very fine straws. And the blood runs through the straws and the dialysate bathes the entire straws and they kind of flow in opposite directions. So you get this counter current exchange 
and the dialysate as a normal concentration of sodium, a normal concentration of magnesium, no phosphorus, no BUN, no creatinine, and then some modest level of potassium, usually about two milliequivalents per liter. And potassium from the body flows down its concentration gradient into the dialysate, urea, creatinine, phosphate, all flow down its concentration into the dialysate. But things go in both directions, right? So the bicarb concentration, the concentration of the dialysate is about 35. And so it flows from the dialysate into the blood and restores the bicarbonate to the patient. And that's how it works in outpatient dialysis. And that's how it also works on continuous therapies, just a lot slower. So instead of getting it done in four hours every other day, we run this thing for as close to 24 hours as we can get. And it slowly will correct the patient's electrolyte and fluid abnormalities. But everything I described there, I did not describe how any fluid gets removed. In fact, I said the sodium concentration of the dialysate is the same as it is in the blood. So you can't remove sodium that way. And so what we do is we actually run that fluid under pressure. We'll actually squeeze some fluid through the semi-permeable membrane. It'll just push that fluid out there. Like if you've ever used a paper straw, you kind of, sometimes you can see that fluid leaking out of the sides of the straw. That's exactly what we're doing. We're just pushing fluid through, through the pores. And that's called ultrafiltrate. You know, on a dialysate machine, we'll get two to three to four liters in a four hour treatment. And on a continuous kidney replacement machine, we'll get, you know, 25 cc's an hour, 100 cc's an hour, 200 cc's an hour. I'm seeing a lot more than 200, maybe 250 is the max, but somewhere in that range per hour, you add that up over a day, that's a ton of fluid. And that fluid that comes off has the exact same electrolyte content as blood does. You know, for every liter you take off, that'll have 140 milliequivalents of sodium. Well, that's a lot of sodium. I mean, that's one and a half times the recommended daily allowance. So that'll get your sodium off and that'll get your fluid off. And that's called ultrafiltration. And the sodium that comes out with that fluid, that is convective clearance. That's the other form of clearance. And so continuous hemofiltration is a completely convective therapy. There's no dialysate involved at all here. And the idea here is that we're just going to squeeze fluid through the pores there take off one, two, three liters of fluid, and that's going to get us all the clearance we need. But if you start to do the calculations, the one I love to do is like potassium. So if somebody eats on a standard diet, 80 milliequivalents of potassium, and the concentration of the blood is four milliequivalents per liter, to get daily clearance, you would need to take off 20 liters, right? Because 20 times four is going to be your 80 milliequivalents of potassium. Well, you can't take 20 liters off of somebody. It'll be a pile of dust. And so what you do is you take off 20 liters and then you put back 20 liters in what's called replacement fluid. And so all the fluid comes off with convection. That gives you all the clearance you need. And then you use replacement fluid so the patient doesn't get hypovolemic. And if you want to take off a little bit of fluid, you only give them back 18 liters. So you've taken off two liters. And that's how a continuous hemofiltration works. And that's just, you it'll have a replacement fluid that is going to be kind of an idealized fluid that looks very similar to the, what you want their electrolytes ultimately to look like. So potassium of four, sodium of 140, you know, some kind of alkali equivalent to be right around 30, maybe, you know, some magnesium and phosphorus in it. And that's going to be a replacement fluid, probably no phosphorus in it, maybe some, 
But the advantage of convective treatment is better for getting rid of larger size molecules. Just because the nature of convective therapy, everything, that, all the fluid that comes out is carrying all kinds of stuff. So it'll also clear some of the middle molecules that, and some larger molecules. They'll all be removed much more efficiently with this convective therapy. The problem is we don't have the evidence that makes a difference. That there's been a number of trials that have looked to see, hey, is that important? And it hasn't panned out the way a lot of people expected. And I'm not saying that it won't eventually, but at least at the doses, at the methods that we're doing now, we're not seeing advantages from this hemofiltration. And then the other one is this continuous hemodiafiltration, and that's kind of a little bit of convective and a little bit of diffusive. You got some dialysate running, you got some replacement fluid running, you kind of mix them together. And it's a way to really jack up the dose if that's what you really need. But for us, we just use hemodialysis, continuous hemodialysis at our institution. We do fine and we haven't had, a, we haven't wanted for these additional therapies. Like I said, they haven't proved their, they haven't proven with the good outcomes. Wow, that's super helpful, Dr. Toff. Thanks for boiling down some pretty complex topics down for us into kind of like these manageable tidbits. Now, for patients, do you think about these therapies differently for patients that are oppressors, endotropes, or MCS, or there's no data on it, or do you think about them the same way? So, you know, again, the only way we do continuous therapy at my institution is as continuous hemodialysis. And we don't feel the need, and maybe at places at very specialized center kind of have better feelings for this. I know there was a, some thought early in the COVID pandemic that patients were having this, I guess we're not supposed to say cytokine storms, but they were having, you know, essentially controlled uh, cytokine production. And they thought that they would benefit from a removal with some therapies that do that. There is another version of this where you use a special filter to absorb those cytokines for that. That's also a continuous therapy. Again, that data has not been very impressive. We don't offer it. I don't think it does much for patients. Same thing with once I've decided on a continuous therapy, then we're going to do uh, continuous hemodialysis. And, and again, the large meta-analysis haven't found any advantages for those other therapies as, as of yet. But, you know, not every patient needs continuous therapies. And then oftentimes patients will be hemodynamically stable enough for intermittent hemo. And in that situation, then there's a real decision to make. If they can do, you know, the patient you presented, I didn't think I had any choice, had to be on a continuous therapy. But if the patient had a, you know, had a blood pressure of 100 or wasn't on the uh, impeller, well, okay, then we can do either. And then you have, to, you have to take a look at some questions. And there, you know, if the patient has acute hyperkalemia, you'll be able to lower that potassium much faster with intermittent hemodialysis. It's a much more powerful machine or technique if you want to get things fixed up in another, in an hour or two intermittent hemo is your friend. And so the same thing with a toxicity. Anytime you have an intoxication, intermittent hemo, much better than these continuous therapies at fixing that problem. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. This is something I've wondered. Sometimes, you know, at different institutions, of course, practices are different, but I don't know if there's actually data behind this. Is it unsafe to run dialysis through the ECMO circuit? I've heard maybe concerns about ear embolus or things like that, but I don't know much about it. What are your thoughts? So it's standard therapy to run continuous dialysis with the ECMO in series with the ECMO 
circuit. I think I have that right. So we have definitely done that. I don't think air leaks are a big concern. There's an, there's an air trap that prevents air from getting going from the dialysis machine back into the body. I don't think that would be an issue. And there is some concern about being able to have adequate blood flow, but we don't need that much blood flow for CRT, you know, 100, 200 cc's an hour. Can be 200 cc's a minute is plenty. Gotcha. Thanks for that. Yeah. You know, I've kind of heard different things. And for me, it's like you avoid another line placement, especially if a patient has difficult access, things like that. So now back to our patient. So our patient gets an HD line and CVVH is started. Now, the CIC team rounds every morning and they visit our patient. Of course, they check the lines and medications and examine the patient. But sometimes the CVVH circuit is kind of skipped over. And I'm definitely guilty of this because it's not generally well understood. And we leave it up to our nephrology colleagues for the most part. And we like it that way. But is there something that we should be looking at every day and keeping an eye on just so we understand our patient more holistically? I think you should look at, you should take a look at the eyes and nose. And I think you want to make sure you're looking at the right eyes and nose, because especially if you're running hemofiltration, you'll have a lot of replacement fluid going in. So the eyes could be just immense. And there's also going to be a lot of fluid removal. So you got to make sure you have the balance right to see how much was actually removed from the patient. I always you know, want to ask the nurse, how long the filter has been running? Does this thing been clotting? every few hours, because that's going to be a, if patients have repeated clotting on the dialysis circuit, they're going to get anemic or they're going to lose a 150 cc's of blood, everything that every time that clots, if they're unable to flush that blood back, which is often the case. So that's something that you also want to be aware. You want to kind of put your nephrologist on the spot. If it's clotting often, you're like, what are we doing about this? This is not good for the patient, right? And the, remember when we choose the dose of dialysis, we're doing this in attempt to get 24 hours of therapy. And if this patient is clotting multiple times a day, circuit is going down, takes time for it to get put back up. Maybe they're only getting 18 hours. Maybe they're only getting 16 hours of dialysis. And then you might not be getting the support that you want to get the patient. And that the orders that we're putting in in terms of fluid removal are not going to be meeting the team, the goals of the team. So find out, you know, how long is this running? How much downtime are we getting? That's another thing that you can get from that. And then, you know, the other thing you can take a look at the pressures. So there's two pumps. There's one pump that's pulling fluid from the patient and another one that's pushing fluid back into the patient. You don't want those pressures to be too high. That would be a sign that there's trouble with your access. Something you might want to talk to the vascular surgeon about that this access seems to be clotting, not working as well. Maybe you need a longer catheter. Maybe you need a different site. Those types of issues. And then in terms of electrolytes, the one that everybody looks at the potassium, you're always worried about that one. That's something that when we start, we'll usually start with a dialysis with a 2K bath. But after they've been on a CRT or continuous therapy for a day or two, the potassium usually will normalize and then you'll need to switch to a 4K bath, kind of keep it steady. But the one that tends to be problematic is phosphorus. So phosphorus usually by the time you start is going to be seven or eight quite high. But on continuous therapies, you'll drive that phosphorus down below one. And when that phosphorus gets that low, you're going to start to get muscle weakness. And I'm not sure you're aware of this, but the heart, muscle. And so it needs phosphorus to work also. And so that's something that I keep an eye on. And that can be difficult to replace because the CRT is really efficient at removing phosphorus. And once it gets going after a couple of days, it can get, that phosphorus can really get low. And you're kind of like, oh, we're giving them phosphorus three times a day. It's still going down. 
And if that's the problem, you can talk to your nephrologist. One thing that we sometimes will do is we'll actually add sodium phosphate to the dialysate. So like just one millimole per liter is enough to prevent that phosphorus from going too low. And that's a real helpful. Thanks for that, Dr. Taff. So our team is paying attention to the patient's ins and outs, and we're maintaining the appropriate fluid balance. The patient is net negative, and we are able to get them fairly euvolemic. As such, we've been able to successfully wean them from the impella. The patient remains, he- remains hemodynamically stable with blood pressures in the 100s, upper 60s. The creatinine has been around three for several days now, and the patient is now beginning to make small amounts of urine on CV. In these scenarios, we often trial diuretics to see if the patient has some native renal recovery. Dr. Toff, does every patient started on renal replacement therapy in these ICU deserve a trial of native recovery with diuretics? How do you manage the transition and are there scenarios where it is futile to try? Yeah, you know, I think so. I think we should try to make give everybody a trial to get off of dialysis if possible. And I think it's essentially you kind of run the FST, the ferrosamide stress test in reverse. Now you're kind of thinking, because it's the same goals as the kidney working well enough. And let's test that glomerulus. Let's test the proximal tubules, test the loop and see if we can get any urine out of there. And there is some evidence of the FST being used on this side as a way of seeing if this can help. So I think that's a totally reasonable way to go. Oftentimes, though, you'll just start seeing patients start to spontaneously produce urine. And oftentimes, once their blood pressure starts to improve, there'll be some pressure from the nurses and from the staff just to finish up the CRT. This is not something we don't need this continuous therapy. We don't have a critically ill patient anymore let's step down the resources that we're using because, you know, that continuous therapy is going to be one thing that will keep the patient in the unit. And so it'll be kind of one part of their checkbox. Like, let's get this checked off. And the other thing to keep in mind, kind of an odometer in your mind to keep going, to keep an eye on is how long that dialysis access has been in. To me, that temporary untunneled catheter, the catheter that was put in at the bedside by vascular surgery or by internal medicine or whoever chose to put that in, you don't want to keep that in there for much longer than a week, that those are incredibly prone to infection, right? If the patient's going to need longer dialysis, you're going to want to get them a tunneled catheter. And, you know, sometimes it's pretty clear that this patient's still pretty sick and they're not getting better. But at that one week mark, you know, you're starting to think, we need, well, we need to get a, a more permanent access. That's a great time to say, hey, this patient going to need dialysis longer or not? And so I always, you know, as that, you know, come day five, and I'm looking at this patient, I'm starting to think, yeah, maybe we're going to need to change that access out. I always try to make a push to see if there's any native function so we can avoid that procedure. And when you see patients start to make, you know, regain some, some renal function and, and they're still on the, the CRRT circuit, do you overlap that with diuretics or do you turn down the rate to try to encourage the kidneys to wake up, so to speak? That, you know, that's part of my evaluation every day is the patient making urine. And in general, they'll start making urine even on CRT if the patient is getting better. That definitely happens. But usually if they're getting hemodynamically stable so that they're off pressors, we'll, we'll transition them to intermittent hemo. The nice thing about intermittent hemo is there's, you know, they go, they're only three days a week. And so you get a chance to see what they're doing natively between dialysis sessions. Great. Thank you for that. So our patient is eventually transferred to the floor and actually transitioned to intermittent hemo, like he just said. And this has continued for about one week. Patient makes progressively more urine and is eventually able to be managed just on diuretics alone. 
Their creatinine eventually improves to 1.5, which is pretty close to their bed. Dr. Toff, with our patient who suffered acute MI and, and now has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, they qualify for a lot of medications that can be seen as quote-unquote nephrotoxic, such as ACEs, ARBs, ARNIs, MRAs, SCLT2 inhibitors. Can you kind of help guide us through when we should be restarting these in a patient who just had a really big renal insult? Yeah, you guys got this, right? The patient has a creatinine of 1.5. I'm just going to ask again, what's the potassium, right? Because all those drugs are going to jack up the potassium. And that's the one that it's hard to fake that, right? If the potassium goes up, you're going to have to stop the drug. So I'd want to know what the potassium was. And if the potassium is fine, then I'd go ahead and start them, right? We know the patient's cause of AKI, and it wasn't because they had bilateral renal artery stenosis, right? Which is the real contraindication possibly to these drugs. And so... I would not hesitate to start these life-saving drugs. And if the cranny goes from 1.5 to 1.8, okay, that's fine, right? It's not going to put the patient back on dialysis. This patient has emerged from that. And getting that cranny back down to one is just a cosmetic issue. It's more important that the patient gets some of the life-saving medications. Well, Dr. Todd, thank you so much for helping us manage this patient and, and learn the ins and outs of CRRT. We can't really do this work without our nephrology colleagues. So, so I think it's important that we do uh, have an understanding about your role in this uh, multidisciplinary team. So I, I just want to wrap up that you know, our patient came in with an acute MI. They had a uh, cardiogenic shock and heart failure, and they had a lot of indications for dialysis. During this case, we reviewed the indications for CRRT. We reviewed the different modalities and the basic physiology behind each mode. And we also talked about a lot of the evidence surrounding this in terms of early versus late initiation, especially in cardiac specific populations. We also talked about how we assess improvement in renal function, improvement in renal recovery and renal function, and how to transition patients off CRRT and, and try to get them back to the floor and eventually back home. I just want to really thank you for joining us today. I feel like I've learned a ton during this case, and it really brought me back to my internal medicine roots. Well, this was super enjoyable. I had a great time talking about this. Yeah, the one thing that we didn't talk about, and I think is super important, is the real need for collaboration here, is that the cardiology team usually has a much better handle on kind of the hemodynamic status of the patient in terms of their volume status. I don't want to completely give that up. I mean, nephrologists are pretty good at that often. But in terms of the most recent wedge pressures, and if you have PA catheter, and meeting with the cardiology team and the nephrology team and getting them together and making sure we're on the same page in terms of volume goals is super important because the kind of the way the continuous therapies work is we give a net fluid removal. So our net fluid removal is 50 an hour. And so if somebody says, oh, give them a bolus of 500, the nurse is just going to take that bolus right off. Or if somebody at the cardiology service, oh, I think they're dry, would start some fluids at 100 an hour. That fluid is just going to get taken off. And make sure you're working together uh, at cross purposes. Well, thank you. I think that is an excellent point. Collaboration is key. And again, highlights so many different things going on in the critical care universe, but also in the cardiology universe. And we would be nothing without nephrology. And we hope to think that nephrology feels the same way. 
Dr. Toft, this was an, an absolute treat. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And we got to thank Justin Burke from Cripsiders slash Curbsiders, who originally made the match made in heaven when Amit and I called you. So shout out to him. And Karin, Eunice, you guys are co-chairing this amazing episode. This has been an amazing series. And of course, Tomio, for all of your efforts in leading this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, all of you. Excellent. This is great. Thank you.